0: Hello, and welcome to Take Five from Green Tech Media, a weekly podcast focused on renewable energy, smart grid, transportation, and everything else in this complex ecosystem we like to call Green Tech. I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with Green Tech Media. In this week's show, we're talking about the future of the Department of Energy. We'll speak with the leader of DOE's Office of Renewable Energy and Energy Efficiency about the challenges facing the department and the country's energy system. Stay with us. Well, folks, we have a new energy secretary. In February, then-Secretary Stephen Chu resigned after a transformative and tumultuous four years at the helm of DOE. And then in March, President Obama found his replacement, MIT physicist Ernest Moniz. Here's Obama announcing his nomination.
1: Now, the good news is that Ernie already knows his way around the Department of Energy, uh, He is a physicist by training, uh, but he also served as Undersecretary of Energy under President Clinton. Uh, Since then, he's directed MIT's Energy Initiative, which brings together prominent thinkers and energy companies to develop the technologies that can lead us uh, to more energy independence and also to new jobs. Uh, Most importantly, uh, Ernie knows that we can produce more energy and grow our economy While still taking care of our air, our water, and our climate. Unlike
0: many other Obama nominees that have been held up because of congressional politics, Maniz was confirmed by the Senate this week by a unanimous vote. He'll now go on to lead the DOE at a time when his department and many others need to make tough choices about spending. So what would those choices mean for Cleantech? Dr. Dave Danielson, the man in charge of DOE's Office of Renewable Energy and Energy Efficiency, believes Moniz will continue to make it a priority.
1: Uh, Actually, I was a student at at MIT when uh, Dr. Moniz was the head of the MIT Energy Initiative, and I ran uh, the MIT Energy Club, which was kind of the student uh, branch of the initiative. And he and I have had numerous interactions, and I've only been very impressed with his ability to to kind of understand policy, business, and technology all at one time. And so, um, you know, I guess if there's one thing I can say, I think that uh, Dr. Moniz has the ability to really see the big picture on clean energy and, and energy across the board. Uh, and the ability to really see the interplay between business, policy, and technology uh, all at the same time.
0: As Assistant Secretary for the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy, Dr. Danielson sets the priorities for clean tech at the department as well. He recently submitted a proposed $2.7 billion budget for his office, a billion dollar increase over the fiscal year 2012 budget. As previous budgets have shown, actual funding is usually substantially lower than the request and with Congress focused on slashing what they can from government, getting such a big spending increase will be a tough task. I spoke with Danielson about that budget, and more importantly, what it says about his priorities for clean energy in the coming years.
1: A significant amount of this this budget request increase does relate directly to manufacturing R&D and manufacturing competitiveness, so uh, I I believe we're going to get some strong support across the board uh, for our budget request. Um, The only other side of the equation is really that uh, it is possible that we will have another continuing resolution, uh, in which case we'll be at the level of last year, which is on the order of
0: $1.8 And what would that do to key programs? How, how, What kind of tough decisions would you have to make if that were the case?
1: Well, one area that we've made a, a strong uh request for is in the area of grid integration. And as as I know you and your listeners know, we're getting to the point, especially with rooftop PV, where in the next five to 10 years, uh, I think we're going to see broad uh, cost competitiveness with, the, with grid-based electricity without subsidies in many parts of the country. And at that point, we're going to have uh, some significant challenges where we need to get Uh, utility business models and we need to get uh, the physical grid set up in a way that we can continue to integrate uh, very low-cost rooftop solar PV while maintaining the grid's reliability. Uh, And so we made a significant $80 million request for uh, a new program to really work with utility uh, and other technology partners in clean energy to really develop the new uh, technologies and uh, utility market structures that will enable us to really kind of democratize the grid and enable high penetration of rooftop PV. So that's one area where uh, if we do end up at, at a continuing resolution level or at that $1.8 billion, we won't be able to do nearly as much as we'd like to do um, uh, to really make sure that we can uh, create an environment where rooftop PV will, will be able to continue to grow as it reaches cost competitiveness as opposed to getting potentially really slowed down Uh, if we don't solve these grid integration challenges.
0: Well, this is a really interesting point because uh, rooftop PV and other renewable energy technologies... Are to the point now where they are commercially viable, they are ready to hit the market, and many of the barriers in front of them are financial are market based and and, and policy related and so i 'm wondering, given your experience at um, arpa e and as uh, in the venture as, as a venture capitalist, how do you balance the need for these market plays with the need for R&D, particularly as spending gets tighter? What to you is a big priority when we look at actual deployment of renewables?
1: That's a great question. And and you're absolutely right that we have to really allocate our limited dollars in a way to make a difference. If you look at the, uh, I'm always telling my team that we need to make one in 1000 out kind of investments and in that uh, even with a, a budget level on the order of $2 billion a year, we're trying to we're trying to move a, a trillion-dollar, multi-trillion-dollar-a-year energy economy. Um, and so uh, I think to take a step back, uh, when I sat down in, in this seat as Assistant Secretary a year ago, I, I tried to really understand where we were and what's unique about where we where we were compared to, you know, five to ten years ago and five to ten years from now. Uh, and when you sit down and just really look at the, the facts and figures and learning curves the, the biggest thing that sticks out is that uh, a wide array of these clean energy technologies that the that, uh, United States, uh, you know, through EERE and by working with some of our best innovators, uh, we've really lowered the cost uh, and, the, and increased the performance to the point where there's pretty clear visibility uh, for a whole slew of clean energy technologies to direct cost competitiveness without subsidies in the next five to ten years. Uh, so that's true for solar PV, as you mentioned, for wind. Uh, for plug-in electric vehicles, uh, for solid-state lighting, for solid-state transformers. So it, there's a wide array of technologies. And so in our budget request, you know, the first priority is really driving hard on these technology areas where, uh, you know, direct cost competitiveness is going to be achieved in that next five to ten years and making investments to ensure that the United States uh, – is the nation that's actually going to get a dominant share of the economic value-add associated with the technology's uh, deployment when it hits the hockey stick curve. And so uh, we're making those kind of investments both in manufacturing R&D and uh, in breaking down market barriers. Uh, But at the same time, we have a balanced portfolio investing – uh, in the longer-term game changers like enhanced geothermal systems uh, and renewable hydrogen, just to give you a couple of examples. Uh, but to take the example of solar, um, you know, it, when we we launched a new grand challenge a couple of years ago called the SunShot Grand Challenge, and I was the co-chair um, organizing our workshops to really develop our vision uh, around the, what, the, what the grand challenge should be. And what we really noticed uh, is that, you know, for the longest time, the module cost had been the longest pull in the tent. Uh, but, you know, as the market has grown and module cost has come down, when we looked at where we were about two years ago, it was suddenly obvious that uh, soft costs weren't coming down. And so if you look at uh, where we are today in terms of, uh, you know, in the order of I believe about two dollars and fifty cents per watt in the field, just to give you uh, one example. And we got to get down to about a dollar a watt in the field, which is the SunShot 2020 goal. Uh, The majority of the of the work we need to do is in the soft costs, and so uh, in the FY 2014 budget, uh, we're really significantly increasing our efforts on soft costs, and those are really um, partnerships we want to develop with both utilities and state and local authorities to really cut through the red tape, uh, make sure that solar is is getting treated fairly as a distributed resource um, to make sure that we can kind of break down these these bureaucratic barriers uh, in addition to driving hard on manufacturing competitiveness.
0: And that's kind of an interesting story because that changed over time in consultation with the industry, if if I'm correct, in that it was really focused on uh, R&D for technologies and, uh, and on solar manufacturing. And then it kind of evolved into understanding the market-based barriers and soft costs in solar. How did that change as uh, time went on?
1: Right. You know, for many years, the, the long pull in the tent was the you know the module cost and performance. And so going back to the 80s with NREL and some of the early work that fed into first solar's success, ultimately um, a lot of the R&D made a big difference and really got us to helped get us to where we were two years ago when we really saw the crossing over of of module cost and soft cost. Where so, and again, soft cost learning curve just was not coming down. It was very flat as opposed to the learning curve with modules coming down rather quickly. Uh, and so um, you know, it was a little bit of a culture shift, and I think it's the kind of culture shift that we're undergoing um, as these technologies are getting closer and closer to cost competitiveness. And, and uh, a bigger part of our role is to really uh, be an honest broker to break down some of these market barriers and to eliminate red tape so that these technologies can naturally fall into, into the market by economic gravity as they actually reach direct cost competitiveness. So I want to
0: talk about this manufacturing piece that that's so crucial to the DOE's broader strategy. And uh this is particularly relevant after, you know, a number of high-profile bankruptcies in this space and DOE has come under fire for the loan guarantee program. Now, these tax attacks have been really political and but but among, amongst it all, there is an interesting conversation about um where the DOE and where the government broadly should play, what kind of role it should play in manufacturing and in clean energy promotion. And I'm wondering as we come out of the experience of the stimulus and we look at the portfolio of loan guarantees that have been issued, if um, the DOE has changed its thinking on you know, how to fund these types of programs, particularly in manufacturing.
1: Yeah, so, you know, under my purview uh, at EERE, at the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy, you know, we primarily focus on research development and demonstration and then on working with our key stakeholders to break down market barriers that exist, you know, whether we have to work with other agencies or or other stakeholders to kind of be the point to really try to break down some of these barriers uh, that exist to the deployment of new technologies. Uh, you know, on the manufacturing side, the first thing that you know, we uh, in EERE, we just launched about a month ago, um, a cross-cutting umbrella effort uh, that we're calling the Clean Energy Manufacturing Initiative, and the first step that that I'm taking is in collaboration with our National Renewable Energy Laboratory. We're really uh, diving very deep on understanding, uh, you know, at a very deep level the competitive advantage that exists uh, for various technology. Uh, supply chains and, and in various clean energy technologies, uh, looking at China, South Korea, Germany, United States, and really trying to understand where U.S. competitive advantage lies and where, uh, where maybe we don't have as much competitive advantage so that as we kind of move into this era where manufacturing is going to scale in a very significant way, that we're investing toward our strengths. Um, or investing to, to shore up our weaknesses. For example, we don't have an advantage in low-cost labor. We don't want to have an advantage in low-cost labor. But if we can uh, be the creators of automation and use automation, uh, then we can bring those jobs back here. Um, you know, when it comes to the work we're doing, a lot of our focus has been in trying to create what's called an industrial commons um, so we're a big part of the president's national network for manufacturing innovation. So we're one of the major partners there, uh, and this is a network uh, of institutes that you could consider to be somewhat analogous to the Fraunhofer Institutes in Germany, that are you know 70 to 120 million dollar, five to seven year, uh, you know government share, uh, uh, 70 to 120 million with a cost share from the from uh, the private sector or states and localities uh, that are really designed to help. Uh, US companies access next generation manufacturing capabilities. Uh, the first one we funded was with the D- Department of Defense and Additive Manufacturing 3D Printing in Youngstown, Ohio. Uh, and just last week, we uh, released uh, three more, uh, competition for three more topics, uh, one of which the DOE is sponsoring in the area of um, next generation wide band gap uh, power electronics manufacturing, which is an area that touches all different clean energy technology areas. And so, these those are really filling in the industrial commons. Um, and so that, that's that been a big part of our focus at EERE. You know, I think the, the loan guarantee program is outside of my purview, but, you know, the whole point of the loan guarantee program was to help support next generation, uh, leading-edge technology uh, scale-up. In areas that the private sector wasn't going to be able to fund on their own. So, uh, you know, there was a, there was upfront, uh, an expectation that some of these technologies wouldn't make it, but that in the long run, the net benefit to U.S. leadership and the U.S. economy would be greatly positive. And I think that the portfolio, uh, and the loan guarantee program is still in the black in that, in that, uh, in that way. And I think we're seeing innovative, uh, technology companies like Tesla Motors that, 20 years ago, if you asked anyone if there'd be a new automotive company in the United States, they'd say no. Uh, and now we've got an automotive company like Tesla that is innovating and selling commercial products uh, and, and making money.
0: Well, I think that that's a really interesting point to bring up and that often gets missed in the conversation around the loan guarantee program, and that is this is a portfolio-wide approach, and many of the investments, most of the investments, the vast majority of the investments are doing really well. Um, but given some of the strategies that you talked about, have has the doe taken any new approaches maybe specifically as a result of the experience in manufacturing through the loan guarantee program has that caused any conversation within the agency over what the best mechanisms are for supporting uh, new companies or incremental manufacturing improvements is there a specific crossover there
1: um you know i think that you know given how fast this market is moving you know we're always uh, having dialogues about what the high-impact, proper role of government is. But, you know, I think that, you know, one of the, the very, is, you know, I know your readers are very familiar with the solar industry. And that's an industry where there was a whole lot of overseas government intervention that really kind of tilted, uh, has tilted things in odd ways, right? Um, but one thing that is exciting to see is that you still do see a strong uh, thin-film solar manufacturing base here, and a really important part of that has been uh, government support through the export import bank, and so I think you know that's an example i think of that the industry and the and the government we really need to kind of be be pulling together even more uh, and being kind of responsive to overseas policies to make sure that we're getting our vectors aligned to make sure that we're supporting our our industry in a in a, in a proper you know free market oriented way but that we're all pulling together to make sure that our uh, you know, our competitive, you know, manufacturing companies are are actually given a chance to succeed and and trying to balance out the, the playing field a little bit. One thing that goes underappreciated, I think we need to, uh, you know, we need to work to track the data a little better. Is that a whole lot of, you know, ultimately I think what we want uh, is to have as much manufacturing value add in this country. So I think we want as much high value, profitable manufacturing happening in this country as possible. And when you talk to companies uh, like 3M and DuPont and others, they're doing some very high-end innovation for some of the components in uh, in solar modules uh, that are ultimately being assembled largely in China today. But there's still a significant amount of economic value add being accrued in the United States and exported. Uh, in this case, um, by virtue of, of of us doing things that are very difficult, you know, manufacturing very high-tech materials uh, or components, and so. I think that you know, with this clean energy manufacturing initiative here at DOE, we want to get uh, even more oriented around where we have that competitive advantage uh, and to make sure that when we take uh, taxpayer funds and put them into some of this innovation that we can see a pretty reasonable pathway uh, to competitive manufacturing happening here, even in the context of other nations uh, perhaps giving some pretty strong subsidies to their industries.
0: I want to shift gears here. Uh, one of the most interesting spending increases is in energy efficiency in this proposed budget. Is that an area where EERE uh, wants to scale up more so than in other sectors?
1: The, well, the two areas, if you if you dive into the to the budget, uh, where you see some especially significant increases are in the vehicle technologies office and in the advanced manufacturing office, uh, and. In this context, the Advanced Manufacturing Office is is under our kind of energy efficiency pillar from a sectoral perspective, uh, and so in the Vehicle Technologies Office, we're, we're putting a significant amount of funding into the EV Everywhere Grand Challenge, which is a, a Grand Challenge that followed on the SunShot Grand Challenge uh, with the vision of making the United States the first country to invent uh, and manufacture pl- plug-in electric vehicles that are directly cost-competitive. Uh, and as convenient as gasoline-powered vehicles by 2022. So that's an effort, you know, it's uh, more than uh, $300 million we want to put into that effort, primarily on next-gen batteries with a major focus on really trying to push lithium-ion as far as it can go, uh, but also investing in, um, in beyond lithium-ion uh, in a significant way for the first time here at EERE. The goals that we, need to, that we want to get to by 2022 are very aggressive. Uh, We're currently at about $500 per kilowatt hour on batteries. Uh, That's come down by a factor of two over the last four years with a lot of hard work. Uh, And we need to get down by another factor of about four by 2022, down to $125 per kilowatt hour to make a broad array of of plug-in electric vehicles uh, directly cost-competitive with gas-powered vehicles. Uh, We're also driving hard on next-generation power electronics and motors. Uh, especially in power electronics on next generation wide band gap semiconductor-based technology. Uh, this is an area gallium nitride silicon carbide where the Department of Defense has made some very significant investments in the past uh, in these materials and now we think they're almost ready for prime time. Uh, the United States has a, has a lead in this area but we want to really accelerate um, our lead into some real commercial success in the clean energy area and here in particular in, uh, in the electric vehicle area. Um, so we're going, you know, we're going big on, on uh, EV Everywhere in this budget. Uh, one thing that we've launched as a complement to EV Everywhere is something called the Workplace Charging Challenge, where we have, uh, you know, the president has laid out a challenge to some of America's, you know, greatest uh, business leaders to um, to sign up to pull their employees on on their uh, ownership or expected ownership of an electric vehicle and uh, commit to provide charging at the workplace for uh their employees, and uh, we 've got more than thirty partners in that and so that that's uh the e v everywhere initiative is going well and we're we're putting a significant request in for that in fy i fourteen on the advanced manufacturing office we 're investing really in uh, in clean energy and energy efficiency manufacturing competitiveness, so one big thrust is. Uh, is working with industry to make them much more efficient and lower their energy costs to make manufacturing more competitive in the U.S., Uh, especially a great opportunity for us to help industry innovate around uh, integrating low-cost shale gas into their processes. Uh, And secondly, we're investing in cross-cutting innovation. So this is um, cross-cutting materials or manufacturing processes that – if we can successfully develop them, we'll have an impact on a whole array of clean energy technologies. Uh, and an example of that is in carbon fiber composites. Uh, so, you know, we're, that's an area where we're investing in, in the advanced manufacturing office where if we can dramatically decrease the cost of carbon fiber and carbon fiber composites, that'll be a game changer for lightweight vehicles, for high pressure cylinders, for CNG storage and hydrogen storage uh, for vehicles, and also for next generation uh, wind turbine blades. Um, And one of the major initiatives that is being proposed uh, is uh, to build out three more um, manufacturing innovation institutes and the president's national network for manufacturing innovation.
0: And on the R&D side, you've got these eight new research incubator programs. Um, Tell me about those.
1: So uh, those are are, – something that I think is very important, um, especially, you know, when I got here about a year ago, I actually was employee number one at ARPA-E maybe three or four years ago, uh, and so I'm very familiar with ARPA-E. And now coming to EERE, uh, I've worked really hard to bring some of the best practices of ARPA-E over here, but I'm also committed to making sure we set up EERE and ARPA-E in a way that they really complement one another. And so, you know, for the most part, EERE, its model is to really work with stakeholders and lay out a very bold, aggressive uh, target uh, for the industry uh, in terms of, you know, achieving a certain cost by a certain year. I think the SunShot Grand Challenge is a great example of that. When we first proposed a dollar a watt by 2020, a lot of the stakeholders didn't take us seriously. Uh, but as we've moved forward, now it's become the new de facto goal. And so uh, our our approach at EERE is really to lay out these long-term aggressive goals, and then uh, build long-term capabilities around the country to really solve the problem. Uh, and in doing that, we really have to kind of create a long-term game plan where we, we really determine what technologies and approaches have the highest probability of getting us to that goal. And so inevitably, we, have to, we can't uh, uh, focus on every single technology. So what's great about RPE is RPE then looks at our roadmap and tries to blow it up, you know, tries to say, hey, those guys, EERE is completely missing this new opportunity. Let's see if we can't fund some new technologies that that really show promise uh, that's off their roadmap. And the challenge we've had is we need to make sure that EERE can quickly and easily onboard uh, the technologies that are coming out of RPE's pipeline uh, that could be game changers and really need to be brought into our portfolio. And so the incubator programs that we're proposing to introduce into each, each and every one of our 10 technology offices are meant to be about 5% of the funds in each office devoted to completely off-roadmap activities. And so it's really kind of like an on-ramp for next-generation technologies like, like ARPA-E kind of technologies to get into our uh, ERE roadmap as quickly as possible uh, as these exciting new opportunities present themselves.
0: So, are there any particular areas that you think are underserved uh, in R and D that need to be addressed either at ARPA-E or DOE uh, collectively?
1: Uh, I do think that there's, there continues to be great opportunity and emerging opportunity in the grid integration space. Um, you know, that's one of these areas where it's interesting, both from a market perspective uh, and from a DOE perspective. Uh, they don't live in one place. And so there are a lot of different offices working on these challenges. Uh, And, you know, in the last year or so, we've created a cross-cutting DOE grid tech team that is working together to really define uh, a roadmap and a game plan. But I think we still... Uh, have opportunity to uh, continue to make uh, more investments in that area that would have a lot of impact.
0: How do you view these investments in a historical context? Uh, I think what we've seen in shale gas is very interesting in that the Department of Energy and other agencies played a very important and direct role in providing R&D support and tax credits and grants and so forth uh, and, and mapping tools for p- folks developing Uh, um, hydraulic fracturing technologies that many people thought wouldn't work. And now we're entering that same phase with technologies like enhanced geothermal, with next-generation solar technologies, with advanced biofuels. And I wonder if you see the development of those technologies in the same context.
1: I absolutely do. And I think that the shale gas story has been a a phenomenally positive story for the nation, you know, from... Uh, you know, I think all across the board in terms of the opportunity presents for lower cost, lower carbon, domestic energy. And as you said, there's a long history going back to the 70s of DOE supporting some of the pioneering work when no one thought it would ever come to anything. And now, you know, 40 years later, it's it's a revolution. And so I think that um, it really highlights the importance of long-term thinking uh, and long-term support for innovation in, uh, in the energy area. And uh, I absolutely you know, it, it's interesting that I think that if you just look at the simple learning curves and where we are, uh, starting to feel uh, almost certain that solar, for example, will become directly cost competitive in my lifetime uh, on rooftops and in the field. Uh, but there are still folks who uh, remember 10 to 20 years ago when uh, that wasn't the case. And so I think it takes a while to move uh, to move people's um, uh, you know, impression of, of how close we actually are. And, uh, you know, I can see, let's say, 30 years from now, I don't see any reason that that we shouldn't have a whole lot of plug-in electric vehicles that people are powering up at home uh, with a dollar a gallon equivalent uh, electric cost electricity. Uh, I don't see why people shouldn't be essentially able to generate all the power they need within their home uh, using the grid as, as kind of a backup. Uh, and so, you know, I, I can see a world that's going to look uh, a lot different and a lot better from an energy perspective uh, in that 30-year time frame, uh, as long as we continue to support, you know, long-term innovation and break down market barriers to the introduction of innovative new energy technologies onto, onto our energy system.
0: Dr. Dave Danielson is Assistant Secretary of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy at the Department of Energy. Thanks very much for listening this week. Please remember to subscribe to Take 5 in iTunes or on SoundCloud. And while you're there, you can rate the podcast and write a review. You can also follow Green Tech Media on Facebook and Twitter to get all our stories there. If you have any ideas for the show, send us an email, uh, editors at greentechmedia.com. We always love to hear from you. And that's all for the show. We'll catch you next week on Take 5. I'm Stephen Lacey.